0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil. Coal. Hydro. Nuclear, Nuclear energy. energy. Natural gas. gas. Energy infrastructure. Solar phone. Wind turbines.
1: The entire debate about climate has been polluted by the fossil fuel money. Basically, I'm not sure that there is any transition that is not a just transition.
0: For September 20th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. It's hard to believe we've been at this for eight years, and despite the many disruptions of the past few years, recession fears, and many other pressures, our audience and our business continue to grow year after year without our spending a dime on advertising and without any support from sponsors or advertisers. The success of our show is entirely due to our listeners evangelizing it by word of mouth. And best of all, our subscribers frequently write in to tell us how much they appreciate the show. For all of your support and encouragement, we are deeply grateful. As is our tradition, we like to use our anniversary shows to look back at the year that was and review some of the big themes that we covered, as well as try to take stock of how the energy transition has evolved and changed over the year. And as always, our friend, energy researcher Jonathan Kumi, has graciously returned to the show to talk it all over with me and offer his own unique perspective on the issues of the day. In today's conversation we start off by discussing how the global response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has affected the energy transition. Then we revisit four big themes that we have covered over the past year that, in my opinion, have ongoing relevance to the energy transition. First, command capitalism, in which governments are increasingly intervening directly in energy markets. Second, the propensity for doom-mongering about climate and the energy transition, and why that's not only unhelpful, but myopic. Third, how our many systems have been rigged in favor of fossil fuels, and how to unrig them. And fourth, the mid-transition, and what it demands of us as we gradually replace old systems with new ones. Then in the news segment, we'll review some of the investments that are being made as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll check out a startling bit of investigative journalism about double agents working as lobbyists for both fossil fuel companies and for climate activists. We'll note another nefarious effort by a natural gas lobby in the UK to delay the deployment of heat pumps. We'll see how fossil fuel companies are using influencers to burnish their images and using lobbyists to spread disinformation about renewable energy. And we wrap it up with a look at a recent paper on the Atlantic. Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, and how many in the mainstream press got that story badly wrong. And now, our conversation with John Coomey, recorded July 20th, 2023. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, John, to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Thanks for having me, Chris.
0: Okay, so we're going to review some of the main themes over the past year, as we do in our annual anniversary shows. And there are five main themes we're going to talk about today. One of them is the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Another is the ongoing forms of command capitalism. The third is pushing back on some of the doom mongers out there and tales and narratives of doom related to climate, which I think are just not justified by the data. We're going to talk about the ways that the system has been rigged in favor of corporate and corrupt interests, and how to unrig it. And finally, we'll review the concept of the mid-transition and some of the salient examples of that. So just to start with then, on the global response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think the global energy crisis has calmed somewhat as energy commodity prices have come off their extreme peaks of last fall and returned to more normal levels. Responses to Russia's invasion of Ukraine haven't been uniform, though, or perfect, as we discussed in episodes 199 and 201 on India, but they've been quite effective nonetheless. And it sort of feels like in most of the world, they're not quite as in crisis anymore, but it's still a very difficult and tense situation with extremely high energy bills that are really hurting a lot of people. And so the pressure is still on to keep moving away from fossil fuels, and the various moves that Europe made last year in particular to do without Russian natural gas were incredibly effective. So, for example, in the news section of episode 193, we talked about EU President Ursula von der Leyen's announcement that less than a year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the EU had already quote, completely got rid of our dependency on Russian fossil fuels. It went much faster than we expected. Much faster than I expected, too, to be honest. And in addition to the European Green Deal three years ago, the Fit for 55 emissions roadmap, which we discussed one year ago in episode 171, the Next Generation EU initiative and its 725 billion euro recovery and resilience facility, there was the Repower EU program launched in May of last year, which is focused on reducing demand, increasing efficiency, and accelerating the deployment and infrastructure of renewables which ultimately resulted in that achievement of eliminating their dependency on russian fossil fuels and as president von der Leyen recounted europe's efforts last year had the desired effect so much so in fact that for the first time the eu generated more electricity from wind and solar last year than it did from fossil gas and that surprising result reported by energy think tank ember shows that while wind and solar are growing quickly, while growth in gas-fire generation looks to be over, and coal is still on the phase-out path despite a short-term bump during the crisis of last year. In total, wind and solar generated 22% of the EU's electricity last year, giving them a larger share than gas or coal. In 2023, Ember projects, Europe will see fossil generation fall by a whopping 20% with gas falling faster than coal because it's the more expensive of the two fuels. And Dave Jones, Ember's head of Data Insight, said that, quote, any fears of a coal rebound are now dead. So that was very much a short-term phenomenon, the rebound to coal last year in response to the tightness that resulted from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think that's pulling back now. Finally, according to data compiled by Bloomberg NEF and reported by Nat Bullard, who you'll remember from episode 124, global investment in decarbonizing energy in 2022 was over one trillion trillion, 1.1 trillion, which is a record high. That equaled the global investment into oil and gas and fossil fuel power generation last year. It also reflected a massive $250 billion increase over the 2021 level of investment, which was the largest year-on-year increase yet. Most of the investment was in renewable energy and electric vehicles, but electrified heat, energy storage, sustainable materials, carbon capture and storage, and hydrogen also set annual investment records last year. And the deployment of energy transition solutions is still accelerating. While it took eight years, from 2004 to 2011 to reach the first $1 trillion. It took less than four years to reach the next trillion and a little less than one year more to reach the latest trillion. Now, it's hard to separate Fed actions and the broader macro outlook from pure energy market dynamics, but the fact that oil has had a hard time catching a bid even after OPEC and Russia cuts is prompting some people to wonder when or if strong oil demand will return, especially while EV sales continue to grow and take market share. and Just to put a data point on that, even though oil demand for surface transportation is less than half of total oil demand, with passenger vehicle fuel representing around 27% of crude oil demand globally, and commercial vehicles representing an additional 17%. So. As we switch over to electric transportation, that could, in time, in theory, knock out about half of existing uh, global oil demand. So I wonder if you had any additional thoughts to add to the response to Russia.
1: Every time someone says that we can change what we're doing in a radical way, the skeptics come out of the woodwork and say, oh, that is not going to be feasible. And I think this example is one that shows that if you set a goal and work towards it, that you can actually do things that you never thought possible. And so it is a remarkable achievement. There are previous examples of this kind of shift. There's a great paper that the IEA, International Energy Agency, did called Saving Electricity in a Hurry. And the first incarnation of that was related to the Fukushima disaster and some of the issues that Japan had with their electric system after they had to shut down some of their reactors. And in that case as well, Japan was able to make amazing strides to reduce its demand, control its demand, modify it. And so I think that it's a general lesson that people always say it's very hard to make these big changes until they actually try.
0: Yeah. Or until we're in a crisis situation that makes us really want to try.
1: Right. And and this is when we talk about a climate emergency, we talk about having that sense of urgency. That's really what we need is the sense of urgency. And if we do, it's going to be a lot easier than we think to get to zero emissions. Yeah. So another aspect of this is that some technologies can move more quickly than others. And behavioral changes can move even more quickly than that. So there's a whole literature on modular technologies and how these can actually be deployed much more rapidly than things that come in bigger chunks. And Amory Lovins suggested this in Soft Energy Path in the 70s. He was pilloried for this and criticized in many different venues, but it turns out he was 100% 100% correct. Yeah, And so there are economies of scale, there's learning effects, and it all comes down to the difference between economies of unit scale, which things like coal plants and nuclear plants relied upon to reduce their costs, and economies of manufacturing scale. And this is a distinction that Greg Nemet at University of Wisconsin-Madison brought up in his papers on solar cost reductions it turns out that economies of manufacturing scale are incredibly powerful. They're a special example of what we call increasing returns to scale. And these learning effects, in addition to things like network externalities and and other sources of path dependence, are actually incredibly powerful in driving costs down and pushing adoption up. So we need to really look carefully at these modular technologies. We also need to think about what behavior changes could help us move more quickly towards a zero emission system. And I think behavior changes have often been kind of off the table when people talk about the energy transition. But finally, in the last IPCC report in AR6, they have a whole section that talks about the kinds of changes that might make things easier. And there are different ways to induce behavioral change. It's not as simple as inducing some technology changes, but there's no reason why those should be off the table.
0: Yeah. Was that the same as the IEA's efficiency paper that came out about a month or two ago? I don't remember, actually, but I know that there's a big section,
1: and they may have they may have taken some of that work out in a separate article.
0: Right. Well, and just a note to bene, for those who might have caught on the name Gregory Nemeth that you just mentioned he was our guest in episode 178 where we talked about how the transition will unfold which was actually one of my favorite episodes because it was just sort of a free-ranging conversation and not too structured
1: yeah Greg is great so one more point on this when models are used to represent the energy system they make assumptions about how fast things can change yeah And almost always they're underestimating the rate of change for certain kinds of technologies. And there's papers now that are showing the cost assumptions for solar in some of these models in 2050 are higher than what they actually are today on the market. And this is another case where we can move a lot faster than we think and we can move a lot faster than the models say. So it's important not to assume that what the models say are the limit of what we can do.
0: Absolutely, and in fact, that point about the rate of change and the rate of adoption of these new technologies was a key concept that we discussed in episode 159 with the Oxford researchers who figured out how to take the recent rates of change and extrapolate them into the future and show that the adoption curves of these technologies are likely to be much higher than most of the models predicted. All right. Well, those are all excellent points. I think the big takeaway for me there is this year showed us that we can actually make progress on the energy transition a whole lot faster than anybody thought was possible.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about command capitalism a little more. So this is a concept that we discussed last year in episode 181 with Kevin Book. That's his phrase, actually, command capitalism. And his concept there was that the very fundamental problems of supply and demand and all sorts of energy fuels and commodities around the world are starting to really challenge our ability to answer those problems just through simple market solutions and so on, and that in many cases, governments have little choice but to intervene wherever they can to maintain stability. We certainly saw many examples of that over the past year where governments around the world intervened directly in the prices of various kinds of energy fuels and systems because the volatility was extreme, lots of people got hurt, uh, especially pensioners and lower income folks. So I think we're seeing that theme continue to play out. You know, the Biden administration's efforts to boost the energy transition are largely about these kinds of interventions. So between the IAJA last year, the new use of the Defense Production Act, and the IRA, which actually passed after we recorded the anniversary show last year, plus the CHIPS Act and more, they're definitely having the desired effect, as numerous industrial players have announced new investments into factories and other infrastructure in the U.S. over the past year. The IAJA offered funding for hydrogen production and transmission lines, among other things. The IRA offered incentives for a wide variety of sectors, including renewable Energy, electric vehicles, and energy storage. The CHIPS Act focused on semiconductors, which are key to a lot of these energy transition solutions. And the Defense Production Act aimed to increase domestic production of key materials like lithium and graphite. For just a small example, as of March, almost 20 new or expanded clean energy manufacturing plants were being planned for EVs and battery production in the U.S. by Volkswagen, BMW, Italian energy group NL, and the Norwegian. Battery group Frere. As predicted, direct government interventions into energy markets have increased, both as command capitalism and as simple, just direct interventions, partly because the IRA pushed countries to develop their own incentive packages to keep them competitive with the US and so as a result many countries are starting to try to come up with their own versions of the IRA. The EU is working on its Green Deal Industrial Plan now which includes a conducive regulatory environment for net zero industries national and EU funding, skill development for the green transition, plus an ambitious trade agenda, and they're now actually contra last year when various officials in the EU and England said, well, we're not going to try to go toe-to-toe with the US on the IRA. Now they're explicitly describing this Green Deal industrial plan as a direct response to the IRA in the US in order to maintain European competitiveness in the energy transition. And European Union member states have approved a plan now that would require all new cars sold in the EU to be zero emission vehicles starting in the year 2035. And As we reviewed in episode 202 on the UK's Green Day, by 2035 the UK will be getting 99% of its electricity from low carbon sources, between a quarter and a third of homes would have electric heat pumps, And in fact, heat pump sales overall, including new build properties, reached around 60,000 last year, which was a 40% growth over 2021. So a very significant increase in heat pump deployment. By 2035, half of all the cars in the UK would be EVs. CCS, carbon capture and sequestration, is also gonna get a boost with up to 20 billion pounds on offer over 20 years. So billion pounds a year for CCS plus a goal to pull tens of millions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere and store it every year. There's also the government's 240 million pound net zero hydrogen fund. And in terms of how the government plans to end the sale of fossil-fueled cars by 2030, The UK is in the process of adopting its own zero emissions vehicle mandate, otherwise known as a ZEV, which is expected to take effect from the start of next year. And that would set each car manufacturer a target for the share of their sales that have to be zero emissions vehicles, starting with 22% of sales by 2024 and rising to 80% by 2030, before hitting 100% by 2035. And as bold and direct as these large interventions are that we've suddenly seen over the past year by various governments, especially in Europe and the UK, these are really just early days. The IRA was only passed a year ago and without a single Republican vote, by the way. So it will be at least another year or two before we can really start to judge the impact of the IRA and how it has accelerated this command capitalism as a strategy in the energy transition. And just a quick recap for those who may not quite remember the legislative history of the IRA, we recorded the 7th anniversary show on August 1st. A week later, on August 7th, the Senate passed the IRA bill on a 51-50 vote with all Democrats voting in favor, all Republicans voting against, and Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie. On August 12th, five days later, the House passed the bill on a 2020-207 vote with all Democrats voting in favor and all Republicans voting against, and on August 16th, the bill was signed into law by President Biden. And as many keen observers had noticed when the IRA was being formed, actually a lot of the benefit of that bill and the funding opportunities in it is actually starting to flow to red states whose representatives voted against the bill. States like Georgia and Mississippi and other places like that have long traditions of being major manufacturing centers. And we do have to manufacture a lot of stuff. So what do you think, John, about this command capitalism theme and how it has played out over the past year?
1: The first thing is that I think it's hilarious that President Biden is saying he's going to show up to these various events that the Republicans are sponsoring and talk, pal- about his talk about his record because <laughs> the money that they're touting now is stuff they voted against. Yeah. So, one of my biggest pet peeves is people who talk about government not picking winners. Yeah. And that's a talking point used to argue for an all of the above energy strategy, including fossil fuels. And the problem is we need directionality and we need rapid action and we can't have money being thrown away on things that we know are not going to contribute to the solution and so part of the need for this kind of directionality is what you're calling command capitalism it's simply sensible planning and it's also giving directionality to investments and saying we're going to invest in things that are going to help accelerate the transition Right. that means we're not going to invest in these other things and that's just Good judgment. And it really bugs me when people say, oh, government shouldn't pick winners. Well, nobody's very good, honestly, except for Warren Buffett at picking actual winners. But the government has a lot of money. And if they do a distributed approach to investing, as anyone and sensible would, you invest in a lot of things. And some of those are going to fail. And some of them are going to succeed. And you put more money into the ones that are doing well. We need that kind of attitude with the focus on the directionality towards zero emissions.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now, a not-so-quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. August 16th was the one-year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, and it has already prompted massive investments in the solutions of the energy transition. Nearly 100 new facilities or factory expansions, totaling more than $70 billion in new investment, have already been announced. According to data from American Clean Power, a total of $263 billion of investment in utility-scale clean energy industry has already been announced, indicating 26,000 new jobs and 181 gigawatts of projects. That's as much as the U.S. invested in total in clean power projects over the previous seven years. See the numerous links in the show notes for details, but just to mention some highlights… Nearly a million new manufacturing jobs are expected to be created, including ones that former coal miners could do. U.S. wind manufacturing is making a comeback. Two GE subsidiaries announced plans to manufacture offshore wind parts in coastal New York. Six other companies are developing or expanding onshore wind manufacturing facilities across the country. One wind tower production facility in New Mexico plans to invest up to $60 million and add around 250 jobs to supply major wind farms in the southwest. Chinese firm CS Wind broke ground on a massive expansion project in Pueblo, Colorado that is expected to become the world's largest plant for wind towers and create at least 850 jobs when finished in 2028. According to American Clean Power, there are now 16 facilities in the U.S. supporting the wind industry, which will make turbines, towers, blades, nacelles, gearboxes, and other key components. Solar is going gangbusters. The largest manufacturer of solar panels in the U.S., First Solar, has seen demand skyrocket, creating a big backlog of orders. Qcells is investing $2.5 billion to expand its operations and build its own solar panel supply chain, from ingots to modules, in Georgia, creating 2,500 new jobs. In total, according to American Clean Power, there are 47 new or expanded facilities supporting the utility-scale solar industry, supporting more than 63 gigawatts of new panel or module manufacturing capacity, more than 15,000 jobs, and over $8 billion of new investment. 13 additional facilities are on the way that have not yet announced locations. Manufacturing is ramping up for both EVs and batteries, as is recycling capability for lithium-ion batteries, particularly in the South. Rivian is investing $5 billion in an EV plant in East Georgia with plans to hire 7,500 workers. Hyundai Motor Group is investing $5.5 billion in an EV and battery plant and has plans to hire 8,100 employees. SK Battery America, which which since 2019 has invested $2.6 billion in two Georgia manufacturing plants to provide lithium-ion batteries for EVs, including the Ford F-150 Lightning, has so far created 2,600 jobs and aims to add 400 more. According to American Clean Power, there are now 14 facilities in the U.S. supporting utility-scale battery storage, creating nearly 6,000 jobs and almost $10 billion in new investment. If all of these projects come online, total operating U.S. clean power capacity would surpass 412 gigawatts and put us on track to produce enough affordable domestic clean electricity to power the equivalent of every American home by 2030. Alongside announcements of massive investment, the report details announcements of over $4.4 billion in savings for over 24 million utility customers. But the Inflation Reduction Act is also raising the bar for oil and gas drilling on public lands. A rule proposed by the Interior Department would raise royalty rates for oil drilling from 12.5% where it has been for a century to 16.67%. It would also increase the minimum leasing bond paid by energy companies to $150,000 up from the previous $10,000 established in 1960. The higher bonding requirement is intended to ensure that companies meet their obligations to clean up drilling sites after they are done or cap wells that are abandoned. Some companies were not fulfilling their obligations under the former requirements, which often led to taxpayers having to pay for cleanup costs. The Interior Department estimates there are 3.5 million abandoned oil and gas wells in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of so-called orphaned oil and gas wells and abandoned coal hard rock mines currently pose serious safety hazards and cause environmental damage. The new rule would also increase the minimum bid at auctions for drilling leases from $2 per acre to $10 per acre. The Interior Department estimated that the new rule would increase costs for fossil fuel companies by about $1.8 billion between now and 2031. About half of that money would go to states, approximately a third would be used to fund water projects in the West, and the rest would be split between the Treasury Department and Interior. The new rules are expected to become final next year. Item two. According to data compiled by F-Minus, an organization launched in July this year and sponsored by the Sustainable Markets Foundation, more than 1,500 lobbyists in the U.S. are so-called double agents working on behalf of fossil fuel companies, while at the same time representing hundreds of cities, universities, technology companies, and environmental groups that say they're tackling the climate crisis. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melzheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.